May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We have three terrific readings this morning, but I couldn't see any connection between them. (laughs) So I've chosen this week and next, I want to talk about King David. I'll make one comment about the gospel reading. Don't make any rash promises. There are several, (laughs) several instances in the Bible where this was done to the hurt of the person who made the promises. I want to talk about what we can learn from King David. We often hear, and I forget where it says it in the scriptures, that David is a man after God's own heart. But when you read some of the that's a little hard to take. It's kind of how... I think when I looked into this one today about the story of touching the ark, I found some things that helped to understand how David became a man after God's own heart. Let's talk about the journey of first. Now remember, this was before the temple. The ark was in a tent, and it was taken with the Israelites from place to place. I don't remember exactly where it would have been at the time before it was captured by the Philistines, probably at Hebron. But it's just in a tent, not a fort. And so when the Israelites lost a battle with the Philistines, the Philistines took the ark. They didn't keep it very long, seven months, because bad things happened in the, where the ark was. You can read about that in Samuel, our first chronicles. They decided they better give it back. But somebody said, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot of gold in that ark. Are you sure this was a sign from God? Maybe it's just a coincidence. So they devised a test. They took two ox, two female oxen, two cows who had nursing calves, hooked the oxen to the cart, which they put the ark on. The oxen were then, and the calves were put back in the barn. So they figured if the cows listened to the calves whining for food, they would go to the barn. But if it was really God who wanted them to give the ark back, they would go to the town of Israel. As soon as they let the oxen go, they made a beeline for Israel. The the ark then resided with this family of Abinadab for 70 years. Now, he was a priest. He knew the rules about how the ark was to be treated. But somewhere along the line, they got a little casual, probably, and the other question is, why did it wait till King David came along? Saul was king for a number of years. He didn't bring the ark anywhere from where it was. But David decided it should be returned to Jerusalem, which he had only recently conquered. So if you remember, David was king in Hebron for seven or eight years. Then he took Jerusalem and he moved his kingdom to Jerusalem. So now he wants to move the ark to Jerusalem. Well, there's two stages to the journey, right? They put the ark on the cart and started off, got halfway there, and the oxen stumbled. And uh, what was his name? Uzzah was driving, so he probably went like this, reached back to steady the ark, and bang, he's dead. 
David was scared, of course. And he said, I don't think I want the ark just now. (laughs) So he broke the rules. First of all, how are you supposed to transmit the ark, transport the ark? You know, Cliff, right? The priests were supposed to carry it, or the Levites, poles. They weren't supposed to put it on an ox cart. But they had forgotten about all this, which means they also probably had forgotten to consult God a lot before they got into this predicament. So he was a little too casual, and apparently David didn't know the rules either because he let them do it. So the ark stays with Obed-Edom, and he gets blessed, and David said, hmm, maybe the ark is a good thing. I think I will move it to Jerusalem. And the second time, it doesn't show up in this reading, but in the parallel passage in First Chronicles, it does. The second time, they carried it the way they were supposed to, as it says in the book of Numbers. It said, uh, in Chronicles 15, it said, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. That's from Numbers chapter 4. Just one more note about the David's wife, Michael, and the dancing. This is not about indecency, jumping too high or whatever. This is about propriety. If you read again in Chronicles, David had a proper length linen robe with this ephod over it. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, who had come to think of herself as royalty, presumably, was offended because this shepherd boy, raised up to be king, was carrying on a little too much. So if any of you feel like dancing during the celebration, I'm certainly not going to stop you. (laughs) Is God safe? Well, David already trusted and relied on God. You know, he had learned to trust from youth, as he says, before he fought Goliath. He had defeated a lion and a bear. Then he killed Goliath. He was pursued by many enemies, but God was faithful to him, and he did make it through all those dangers and become king, as God had anointed him. In many, many of the Psalms, David pleads for help when he's being pursued by his enemies, and he thanks God for the help that he got. So David had come to believe that God would be faithful to his promises toward him. So what is God's point here, then? Is he just a stickler for the rules? What represent? As I said before, there's no temple yet. The ark was contained in tents and curtains on poles, which was very mobile so that the people could take it with them. This ark had led them through the desert. This is where Moses went to consult with God as to what he should do. When they obeyed God's direction, they prevailed. When they went off on their own against God's direction, they were defeated. So why did it get captured? Why didn't King Saul retrieve it? Well, Saul was clearly not following God's direction, or it wouldn't have gotten captured in the first place. We also know that Saul got impatient waiting for Samuel, offered authorized to do. And when Samuel quit talking to him, Saul consulted witches. 
So he was clearly not following the way which God had laid out. Had they gotten too familiar with the ark? God had to do something to get their attention, to get them back on the right track. God's plan through his people Israel to bring about the coming of Messiah had to prevail. And if the Israelites were getting so far off track that it wasn't going to, he had to use some rather rough means to bring them back. They had forgotten that they are dealing with the Almighty, the master of the universe. So no, God is not safe. What did David learn from this? We see again from many of the Psalms, David gradually had a learning, he learned an awareness of sin, of being different from God and different from what God wanted. He learned of the holiness of God. In many of the Psalms, he talks about repenting of his sins. In particular, he even prays, forgive my hidden faults, the things I did that weren't right with you that I didn't even realize. Forgive my presumptuous sins. Maybe this was one of them, and he presumed that he could just carry the ark anyway, whatever. And that psalm is actually where we get the prayer that uh, normally we say right before the sermon, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. So David wants the words of his mouth and the thoughts in his heart not to be sinful, but to conform to what God would have. He even prays for forgiveness for the sins of his youth. And many other psalms, especially Psalm 51, he prays to be cleansed of his sin, to have a clean heart, to keep the joy of his salvation, to keep the spirit of God alive in him. Because sin does kill the joy of our salvation, our spiritual union, and it also makes it difficult for God to bless his people. Secondly, and perhaps more striking to me, was David learned to let God prevail and trust what God would bring about. There are two stories later in the book of Samuel which illustrate how much David had changed. The first, these both occur years later after uh, when David's son Absalom revolted against him largely because David hadn't managed his and their offenses properly. And David actually had to flee from Jerusalem. This is in 2 Samuel 24 to 26. And the, the priests wanted to bring the ark from the temple, well, from the tent, they still didn't have a temple, with David. David's the king, the ark's going to go with David. David said, no, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So David was king, but he had no sense of entitlement. If God was ready to make a transition... That was fine with David. And on the way down from Jerusalem to the the, uh, Jordan River, one of Saul's descendants, Shimei, cursed David. And the soldiers who were with David 
What business does he have cursing you? And David said, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, what then shall, who then shall say, why if he is, I'm sorry here, why have you done so? Leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. I think maybe by this point we can see that David is a man after God's own heart. It took a while, but he got to the point where he was totally conformed to the will of God and accepted that will as the best thing for his life. So, is God safe? No, but he's good. That line comes from C.S. Lewis as the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. When the children first see Aslan, the lion, and they ask, is he And the answer is no, but he's good. We have a holy God. He is not like us. He can't be deceived, can't be bargained with, can't be bribed, can't be taken for granted. Do you really want to deal with someone like that? It's a little tough at times, isn't it? I want to make two points about this. One is external and the other is spiritual. The external, of course, symbolizes for us the spiritual or the internal and helps to make it real to us. The external concerns our is the Eucharist. When I said my first Mass as a Catholic priest, January of 1966, I was giving communion to people at the communion rail. My family, I think, was up first. And in those days, you put the host on the person's tongue. You did not hand it to them. And as I was putting the host on my uncle's tongue, I dropped it. And it side of the communion rail and a couple of people went like that. There it is. I told my uncle, pick it up. And he did a double take and I said, pick it up. So he picked it up handed it back to me. And after the service, he was astonished that he had been a host. So we don't have quite the same idea about the host today, and I think rightly so. We do touch it in the water because we are sanctified. We are a royal priesthood in Jesus Christ, and so we may touch the sacred elements. And that carries over into our internal disposition to God, So we can either keep God at arm's length or we can get close enough to allow him to touch us. We can approach the light. When we were at All Saints Church quite a few years ago, there was a lady, she had four children, and I knew, knew them fairly well because I coached the girls' softball team and two of her girls played. The oldest daughter, when she was 18, a freshman in college, was killed in an auto accident. It was very, very sad for them and for the whole parish. I ran into her by accident a couple of weeks after that, and she said to me, 
Why did this happen to us? We didn't want much from God. We just wanted to have our little family. We didn't want God to ask too much of us, and we were Well, it doesn't work that way with God. He does want much from us, and we have to be willing to draw near to him to see that. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And when tragic events do happen, you will have much more support from your faith in God than if you have kept yourself at a distance from him. It can be painful at times. God's spotlight is bright. It's kind of like the uh, illuminated mirror on your dressing table. You get up close. So that can happen when you're dealing with God, not because he wants to ping you about all your little defects, but just because that's the way it is. You see, the more you see of God, the more you see the gap between you and God, and the more you're willing to ask of him to bring you closer to him, to be more like him. If that sounds a little too challenging, remember, Jesus said, this same God is also your father. And every hair of your head, including the gray ones, is numbered. He knows all our needs. He is our Father. So, here's the challenge. Take everything as coming from him, or through him, through his hands. If you are cut off in traffic, or insulted, or neglected by an attendant in a store, can you say, perhaps God had this person do this. Perhaps I should accept it as coming from God, and perhaps he will bless me for it. Jesus said similar things. Turn the other cheek. Bless those who curse you. Bless and do not curse. Perhaps God then will repay you for what you endure. Why? Because this is what God is like. And he will use your acts of blessing in very powerful ways as well. I think we saw about as vivid an example of this as you can see with the Mother Emmanuel Church in Charleston in recent weeks. How they forgave their assailant and how they also continued to proclaim love and unity. And I read an interesting comment about that. It's not just, this commentator said, it's not just their religion, it's because of the habit of their religion. They studied it, they practiced it, they practiced it for generations, and when the crisis came, they responded accordingly. In a lesser example, I recently read a biography, autobiography, of a man named Joseph Pierce, who is an Englishman who at one point was a skinhead, a neo-Nazi, participated in some of the events, violent events in Northern Ireland, and eventually became a Catholic. And he said that the main things, other than some reading and praying, which he did, the main things which started him down that path to that change were three unexpected acts of kindness done to him by people he would never have thought would. One was a policeman, one was a political opponent of his, and the other was just an ordinary person in ordinary circumstances. And these unexpected acts of love made such an impression on him 
that he eventually turned to Jesus. So take that challenge. See everything as coming from, or perhaps at least through, the hands of God. And then you can become the woman or the man after God's own heart. Amen.